0: Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis. Well, for the last couple weeks, we've been doing something a little bit different here on Living Heritage. We've been playing clips from the archives, sharing some of the the stories and memories that we've been collecting and placing on Memorial University's digital archives initiative. Uh, It's a little bit of a change from our usual interview format, uh, which we'll be getting back to, but uh, today we're gonna continue with that uh, idea of playing some clips from our collections, but today we've got something a a little bit different and a little bit special. Today, we are gonna be focusing specifically on Newfoundland stories, and they are all gonna be stories from and about Newfoundland, many of them of a of a sort of supernatural nature that are told by kids, and these were recordings that were done uh, as part of two different projects. The first project that we're going to be listening to was an Art Smarts program. Art Smarts is a program that is run here in Newfoundland and Labrador, it's, uh, it's administered by ArtsNL, NL, and it's a program that sends professional artists into schools to work with students over an extended period of time. Uh, and this can be any kind of art-based uh, project, uh, and it might be different types of artists working together collaboratively with the students. So you might have a ceramicist, you might have a dancer, you might have a musician, or in in the case of the project that you're going to listen to now, uh, a storyteller. So this is a project that actually dates back to 2008. 11 years ago, it seems hard to imagine that now. So a lot of these kids that you're gonna be hearing who are in grades five and six at that point, are now, uh, they're now young adults. They're, they're, they're young uh, people, they've, they've grown up a lot since then. And, and we were lucky enough to do a little uh, recording at the time of these kids practicing their stories. Uh, this was a project that I had run with storyteller Mary Farron. We had gone to Holy Cross Elementary School, uh, a school which is now closed here in St. John's. Uh, Mary was working with the younger children, I was working with the grades of four to six, and with the grades five to six, uh, one of the sets of stories that we were working on were Newfoundland stories, stories of the supernatural. And we're going to start off with one of my favorite local legends. This is the story of James Curran from Holyrood, Conception Bay.
1: Hi, my name is Caitlin Lacey and my story is James Curran's ghost. James Curran was born in Ireland and moved to River, Newfoundland in the early 1800s. In the 1860s, the town decided that they needed to build a new cemetery. Soon the word spread that every man in the town was expected to help build it. James Curran was one of the men who volunteered to help, but unlike most of the other men, he never wandered off to work with the fishery. James Curran took it upon himself that he would be the one to finish the job, and finished it, he did. Weeks passed, he found out that building the cemetery all by himself was much too hard, and he grew very, very ill. One day, as he lay in his bed close to death, he called a close friend upon him and asked that he be buried in the cemetery that he had helped construct. His friend shook his head sadly and said, I'm sorry, but nobody is permitted to be buried in the new cemetery till it has been blessed by the priest. So James Kern sat up with all his strength and said, If you don't have me buried in the new cemetery, then I will come back and haunt you. And with that, he died a few days before Christmas. So his friend walked to the priest's house and knocked on the door. The priest answered, and James Kern's friend told the priest of his dying, Dying vows and final requests. Let him come back and haunt me," said the priest. "And I'll take care of that ghost." And with that, he sent James Kern's friend away, declaring that he would be buried in the old East Side Cemetery. Now, little did the priest know that what James Kern's friend said was true, and that he would come back and haunt him. So one day, as he was riding across the frozen, icy pond in his carriage, A strange wind blew over him, and it was James Curran's ghost that had come back to haunt him and led him astray into the wilderness where nobody could find him, and he couldn't find his way back home till daylight. When he finally reached home, he ran up the stairs to find himself with great banging noises and a great commotion, and he panicked. Where will I go? What will I do? There's a ghost in my house, and I have nowhere to go. So he ran back down the stairs to the barn and told the drivers, you and you, go back to where you came from and dig up James Kern's ghost and take him to the new cemetery. And so on cold, wet December day, that's what they did. They dug up his body and dragged him to the cemetery. So James Kern was reburied, becoming the first person to be buried in the new cemetery. And as far as I know, he never bothered the old priest again.
0: A young Caitlin there with uh, James Curran's ghost. Uh, that is a traditional story from Holyrood. Uh, it is a story that I've heard in a number of different variations uh, over the years. And uh, often the story gets changed a little bit in the oral tradition. That's, that's kind of what happens. But there are a couple little things about it that uh, fascinate me. Uh, a few weeks ago, or maybe last week on the podcast, we, we played an interview clip with Joe Moore. We were talking about newspapers and newspaper boys, and he had this great memory of being a newspaper boy in downtown St. John's. Uh, Joe passed away about a year ago. But um, he had told me a version of that story as well, the James Kearns ghost story story. And one of the details that he had added, which which I've since heard from some other people in the area, was that when they they dug up this coffin to move from the old cemetery to the new cemetery, it was a, a miserable December day. And as they carried this coffin on a cart towards the new cemetery, uh, icicles formed on the coffin. And so when they arrived uh, at the new cemetery and picked up the coffin, there it was uh, covered in all these icy fingers. Uh, a really great visual image, uh, which makes me think that probably it's one of those things that, that might actually have happened. Uh, uh, certainly James Curran is buried in the new cemetery and, and this story of him haunting the priest has persisted for a very long time. The next story that we're going to hear is a story that's told by uh, Chantel Saunders, who at that point was in grade five at Holy Cross Elementary. This is another uh, kind of traditional story, more of a folk tale, uh, a local legend that was written in uh, a, a very fascinating book, a book called Edie's Book, written by Edith Burridge, uh, who has since passed away. Uh, she was from New Perlican and uh, had a great repertoire of stories which she had written down. And many people in the community still talk about her and her, and her incredible stories that she had. So this is one of her stories told by Chantel Saunders. And Chantel calls it the stranger at the door.
2: My name is Chantelle Saunders and the story that I'm going to tell today is called A Stranger at the Door. Once long ago, when water was not as wet as it is today, there lived a fisherman and his wife. They were not a wealthy couple, but in their hearts they were still good people and they were very hard workers, which mattered in those days. In the fall of the year, when the fishing was done, the fisherman and his wife got under a small boat and sailed down the bay. There on the far side of the bay... While the wife picked berries, the fisherman decided to go cut timber down to build a new house. He cut the logs, he cut the logs, he trimmed them, then he hauled them back to the shore. And that he and his wife built a small house. When the house was finished and the fire was burning merrily in the old wood stove, the fisherman said that he'd be going visiting visiting the neighbors down the shore. He put on his cap and kissed his wife goodbye, and he headed off into the night. The woman decided to do some sewing. So she made herself comfortable in the old rocking chair by the wood stove and began to sew. She sewed and she rocked and she rocked and she sewed until the door to the tiny house swung open and there was a stranger, who was a very tall man. So tall that he had to duck his head to get underneath the doorway. He was dressed in a black suit with a black tie knot neatly around his neck and he had an old black hat in his hands. The woman was startled, as if you would be if a stranger walked into your house. So she put down her sewing and remembered her manners. Well, hello, she said, and offered him a cup of tea. The stranger said absolutely nothing. He turned his body around. Still having his hat in his hands, he closed the door. And that is the end of that visit. When her husband got home that evening, she told him what had happened. So if he came in as soon as he saw I was alone, she said The, the next night the, the fisherman said that he'd, that he'd be going visiting the neighbors once more. So he put on his cap and kissed his wife goodbye and he and he was off into the night. The woman decided to do some sewing. So she made herself comfortable in the old rocking chair by the wood stove and began to sew. She sewed and she rocked and she rocked and she sewed until the door to the tiny house swung open and there's a stranger. This night the woman was not as startled as the other night as the night before. So she put down her sewing and remembered her manners and offered him a cup of tea. As the other night, he did not uh, say anything. He turned his body around, still having his hat in his hands, he closed the door shut. That evening when her husband got home, she told him what had happened. It's still if he came in as soon as he saw I alone, she said and tomorrow night you better be here to catch him to see what he wants. So this night the fisherman did not go vis- visiting the neighbors. He sat he sat on the day bed by the old woods by the wood stuff, while his wife made herself comfortable in the old rocking chair and began to sew. She sewed and she rocked, and she rocked and she sewed, until the door to the tiny house swung open and there was a stranger. He ducked his head together underneath the doorway. After that he walked to the middle of the floor. The fisherman jumped off the daybed and quickly, quickly walked to where the stranger was. "Well, my good man," he said, "what do you want from us?" "Sir," said the stranger in a hollow sort of voice, "I beg of you to move your door. If you do me this favor, I will never bother you again." The fisherman promised the stranger just that. The morning came, and the fisherman remembered his promise to the stranger. He took the door and moved it to the other side of the house. After that was finished, he discovered that there was a grave. And if anybody came in or out of the old doorway, they'd be stepping over the stranger with the hat's grave. Needless to say, the fishermen did not spend much time bolting up the old doorway. They never, ever saw the stranger ever again. Thank you.
0: Chantal has some great uh flourishes there in that story. I love the repetition. Uh, And that feels to me a a bit like um, a a local legend that has been grafted onto this uh, very typical kind of folktale format with things happening in threes, the repetition, the repetition of phrases, uh, a lovely retelling there. Um, and it is, a, it is a story that does come from New Perlican. Uh, one of the interesting things about New Perlican is that there are actually graves kind of throughout the community. Uh, like many places in that part of Newfoundland, it has a long history of, of settlement. Um, certainly there were people there very, very early in the, in the colonial period. And uh, we know that uh, there are a number of graveyards and individual graves scattered throughout the community. So, so perhaps these, these stories are, are based in some element of, of truth in the community um, and then have this kind of supernatural uh, folktale gloss put over top of them. Uh, another example of Newfoundland folklore in action is the next story we are going to hear about uh, Jake and his token, uh, story told by Sean Hewitt.
3: My name is Sean Hewitt, and I'm in grade 5 Mr. T's class. Um, my, and my story is called Jake's Ghost. Once upon a time, there was a guy named Jake and a girl named, named Elizabeth. One night, Elizabeth thought that she'd visit Jake. So she started walking down this path to Jake's house. Um, about halfway down the path, she saw Jake, but she couldn't really tell if it was him. So anyways, so she walked a little bit further, and she saw Jake. And so he kept walking. She's like, Jake, stop. I want to talk to you. And he kept walking. And anyway, she said, Jake, stop. He never stopped. And then out of nowhere, he just vanished. So she gathered herself together and ran the way, rest of the way to Jake's house. When she got to Jake's house, Jake was just sitting down, tying up an old pair of boots. He hadn't left his house that night. Well, oh, yeah, then uh, Jake's as weeks went by, Jake's boss sent him on a business trip. On that business trip, Jake didn't come back. So they sent a search party for him. They found Jake close by to town. He had a gun in his pocket, and his gun had gone off and gave him a terrible wound. Jake died that night now, from now on, people say that when Jake saw figure of jake, when Elizabeth saw a figure of Jake on that path that night it was a sign of jake 's upcoming death
0: <laughs> I think my favorite part of that is that little kid at the end. In the applause, going, I love that. Of all the stories that I hear in Newfoundland and Labrador, that idea of hearing or seeing. Having some kind of experience of someone around the time of their death is probably the most common. Uh, we call that a token. In other places, it's called a fetch or a forerunner. Um, and it, it is a, a ghost that lets itself be known. And maybe ghost isn't the right word. It's, it is a, a warning, a sign of someone's either impending death or, or a sign that someone's death has already occurred. The next story you're going to hear is uh, a story that is um, perhaps a bit of an amalgamation of different stories. It's a story called Krusty Harry and it's from uh, from one of my books of ghost stories uh, called The Golden Leg. Uh, this is a story that I wrote actually that is based on a series of fragments of stories largely from the Trinity, Trinity Bay area.
4: My name is Kaylee Oliver and the story I will be telling is Krusty Harry one night many years ago after the work was done, the village men gathered around the old store to tell tales. As the night wore on and more tales were told, one man spoke up and began to tell a ghost story. Bah! said a disbelieving voice from the corner. I don't believe in ghosts. The storyteller paid no attention and began again. Bah! I don't believe in ghosts, Christy Harry said again. The crowd paid no attention and urged the storyteller to spin another yarn. "'Crusty Harry said once more, "'I don't believe in ghosts.' "'This last interruption was too much for the storyteller. "'Then go home,' he said. As crusty Harry rose to his feet and headed for the door. "'A voice called out after him. "'Mind the ghosts now, Harry.' "'I don't believe in ghosts,' Crusty Harry said, "'and headed home.' "'As he walked down, he felt a sudden chill, "'and he could hear noises behind him "'that sounded like the wind filling the sea. "'He looked over his shoulder to see what was there,' And there, sailing down the middle of the street, was a fully rigged ship. On the deck of the ship was a man standing there in a long blood-red coat with brass buttons down the middle. Ahoy, Harry, said the captain. Do you believe in ghosts? Bah, Krusty Harry said. I don't believe in ghosts. And continued home. At this, the, the crew of the ship came out onto the deck, each one more ghostly than before. First... They lowered the anchor, and then they lowered a rowboat into the road and it made a splash as if it was water. The crew started rowing alongside Harry while the, while the captain took its place at the front. Do you believe in ghosts, Harry? The captain said again. I don't believe in ghosts, he said. The captain flew out of the boat and stopped Harry from walking any further. So, Harry, he said, you say you don't believe in ghosts, but do you believe in me? I don't believe in ghosts, Krusty Harry said, and I don't believe in you. He lifted up his fist and gave the captain a great smack on the head. With a great cracking noise, the, the head fell down into the bony hands. The captain with the crew, the rowboat, and the ship, they all disappeared. Then Krusty Harry ran the rest of the way home. <coughs> Many nights after, after the work was done, the village men gathered around the old store to tell tales. As the night wore on and more tales were told, one man spoke up and began to tell a ghost story. But, Krusty Harry said from the corner, I don't believe in ghosts. But say what he might, nothing could disguise the fact that the hair on Krusty Harry's head had turned from black to the pure snowy white.
0: Kaylee Oliver there with the story of Krusty Harry. Uh, Those were all students who were part of the Tell Me Another One Art Smarts project at Holy Cross Elementary back in 2008. The next group of students that you're going to hear are a little bit older and were recorded a little bit later. This next grouping of stories was collected as part of the Young Folklorists program. This was a program that Heritage NL ran in 2011 with some high school students from around the St. John's area. Uh, We spent two days together. We collected some stories. We talked about our own stories from our own communities. And in the Newman Wine Vaults, the students were given an opportunity to, to tell some of the stories from their own communities or stories that they had learned uh, as part of the course. So we're going to start off that uh, with, uh, I think, probably a local legend, and we'll come back and, and discuss it.
5: My name is Stacey. I'm in grade 7. I'm from Baltimore school. Um, the title of the story is called Peggy's Hallow. In the south side of Cape Royal, like, I, I don't know when the date was, maybe in the 1900s or 1800s, there was this couple, and they fell in love, and they built a house. And the man, he proposed to her, and he said, oh, i want to marry you. He goes, let's get married in a month. And so on the day of the wedding, he said he was going to go out fishing. He said he'd be back in before the wedding. So we went out and he was hailing his nets and apparently he got a cow just to go out for like a couple of hours and eventually he got lost at sea. So Peggy, she went to the church and she was waiting and waiting, like thinking maybe he'd go home and get his stuff on and come back. So he never came to the church. So she went to the church, she went down to sit outside in her waiting dress and she waited on the wharf. And like sometimes in the nighttime you can hear like a woman like screaming out his name, Douglas, I'm pretty sure what it was. Or, like, you can see her roaming in her wedding dress and she's, like, crying or something. That's It's, like, folklore of Cape Royal. Like, it's a story, but everyone has their different endings to it. Like, there was a couple of different ones. One was she tied a rack to her foot and, like, killed herself. There was another one where she tied a rack to her foot and, like, she took it off when she got down there and she, like, roams the seas for him. And some people all, like, swear to God that they... um. They seen her walk, and she was crying and they sees her on a wharf screaming out to him and all that. Yeah, that's it.
0: I love that uh... Cape Royal accent there. Stacy Chaloner there recorded as part of the Young Folklorist Program back in 2011 with a story from Cape Royal. Um, there are a lot of ghostly bride stories in Newfoundland. One of my favorite is from uh, Arnold's Cove. Very very similar story. Uh, a bride is waiting for her love to come back for their wedding. He is lost at sea. She throws herself from the cliffs and and haunts the site. Returns every year on the same date. Uh, it's a story that. Uh, I think is probably what we would call a migratory legend. There are versions of this found uh, all around the world, lots of unfortunate loves throwing themselves to their deaths. Um, I do like the little addition there, though, at the end of the the bit where she ties the rock onto her foot and sinks to the bottom of the ocean and kind of wanders the sea looking for her love. I think that's a great, uh, a great little touch there. Um, the next story that we have is also a local local story of sorts. Uh, Bell Island is home to many, many stories. So here's one for you from Bell Island, Conception Bay.
6: My name is Nicole Doyle, and I, uh, I'm in grade 9, and I go to St. Michael's on Bell Island. This story that I'm going to tell is 100% true. Um, it happened in the woods of Bell Island um, when I was walking home with two friends, and um, they heard a snap, and um, I was like, "Oh, guys, it's probably just a bunny or you know something like that." And then we heard the snap again, and then Jordan, my uh, boyfriend at the time, um, <clears throat> he uh, he said, "Yeah, I think we should really get going, Nicole." And I was like, "No, it's not a big deal, guys. We're gonna be." and then I froze and I saw what they saw. It was three feet tall and it looked like it had a hat, a really pointy hat and it was whitish, light bluish and the rest of it was like a a black cloak and around the chest area was two large red eyes. And um, Stephanie took off And Jordan was trying to pull me to go with him. And I really wanted to see what it was, because I didn't believe what I saw. So I rubbed my eyes, and I started walking towards it. And as I was walking towards it, it was moving closer to me. But it wasn't walking, because it had no feet. So it was floating. And that's what uh, made me run. So um, the next day, I got them all together again. And I thought that we should go see if it was like a sign or something that was just an illusion of what we were seeing and there was nothing on the path. <coughs> then I came up with the idea that we should probably go a few nights later and see if whatever it was would come out again. So um, they said no, so I went by myself and I packed my camera and I had it ready and I um, I was on my way, and I was waiting there for about 30 minutes, and then I was like, well, it was probably just something I saw. I'm crazy, you know? And then I was like, but Stephanie and Jordan saw it too, so I'm pretty sure that what I saw was real. And as soon as I turned around, there it was again, but closer this time. I was really scared, but I knew I really wanted to get the picture of it so I could show all my friends and family and stuff because I was really scared. And I took the picture and all of what came out was what looks to be my little sister's finger painting. So I'm never going back to the woods again. And if I learn two things from this experience is to one, listen to my parents and two, never go in the woods.
0: Thank you. Some very good practical advice there from Nicole Doyle. Uh, all the stories that I hear from Belle Island are super creepy. I don't know what it is about Bell Island, but it is a great place for a, a spooky story. We got one last story for you here. I think we got time to squeeze it in at the end. I love an urban legend. And here is a fantastic one uh, told about a, a park just outside of St. John's.
7: My name is Emma Burry, and I go to Larry's Brook, and I'm in grade 9. And my story is about uh, Sunshine Park. It's from a counselor that I had um, at the camp that I used to go to. He said that there was a serial killer that used to go around Sunshine Park. And he would kill people who went on the smaller paths and stuff. And they never found him... Uh, for a really long time because he always used to wear gloves and stuff so that there was no fingerprints or anything. They finally found him and they put him in jail and so then this camp started up. Every year they had an annual campfire. They would stay there the rest of the night and either camp out in tents or they'd go to the chalet which was at the like the house at the beginning of the park. The police we're talking to the counselors at the, the camp, and they said, "Well, we're letting him out tonight." And the counselors were like, "No, you can't do that. Um, like, there's going to be a lot of kids here tonight, and we don't want him to do anything." And the police were like, "No, no, it's going to be okay. He's a changed man, and all this." So the counselors agreed, and they went ahead with their campfire. So they were having a good time and they had their campfire and all that and they went back to the chalet and they sat on the stairs and did a head count. And two people were missing. So they took two groups of three people and two counselors and they went back to the area where the campfire was to look for them. And one of the little kids went and he kind of like stumbled away from the group looking for the people, tripped over something. And at the time, it was really dark, so he didn't know what it was. But apparently, it was a dead body. So, of course, where he didn't know where it was, like, what it was and all that, he went and he didn't tell anybody. So they walked back thinking that they must have went back to the chalet. And when they got back, everybody was dead. And there was an axe and a yellow glove on top of the axe. And that was basically the signature for the serial killer. And that's it.
0: So, campers beware. That's it for our stories today. Thanks to all those young people uh, who told us those stories back in 2008, 2011. It's great to have those recordings. If any of those stories remind you of a story, send me an email, livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. You've been listening to the Living Heritage Podcast, a co-production of Heritage NL and CHMR Radio at Memorial University. You can find previous episodes on iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. We're on Twitter at HFNLCA. Do you have a question or a suggestion about an aspect of culture and heritage you want us to explore? Send us your mail and we'll do our best to answer it in an upcoming show. Email us at livingheritagepodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Lache Swing. Thanks for listening.